Hi everyone, this is the Existential Delight Podcast. My name is Dylan, and welcome. The goal of this channel is to be the opposite of an existential crisis, and to try and make you feel good about life and the time we have here, without watering anything down. This episode of the co- of the podcast is a little bit different to what I normally do, which is where I have a conversation with another person. In this one, I'm really just talking to you, and it's going to be fairly relaxed, very relaxed. It's uh, a lovely, cool, rainy evening here in South Africa, and I'm in my living room just recording this. I hope you're doing well. I hope things are going well for you in your life. And over the last three weeks, I've been reading a lot more poetry than I normally do. And in the course of that, I found myself looking for shorter and shorter poems in the hopes that I could memorize some of them. I'm going to be looking at three poems today, and of those three, I've only memorized one of them because it's the shortest one. It's only eight lines, and I'm going to be talking about just really sharing a few ideas with you, reading the poems, and just uh, letting these poems kind of marinade on my thinking and hopefully on yours too. I should say that a good poem is a dose of concentrated insight. And just think about that word insight, right? To see into something. So perhaps to see something that you hadn't seen before as if, you know, like when you're walking with a friend and they tell you something about yourself that you weren't aware of. They'll say something like, you know, when we walk past the shop or when this happens or when somebody says this, you always say that or you always respond in this way or you have this sentence or this catchphrase almost that you tend to say and you look at your friend and you think, really, do I? And then you slowly realize that your friend is right and They've given you a peek into yourself. They've made you realize something about yourself that you hadn't seen previously. And a poem can do that. A poem can do that about, well, really whatever the poem is about. It can give an insight into whatever the poem is exploring. And I think that a really good poem is always going to have an insight of the eternal, of something true something good and something beautiful. And I think that's especially true for these three poems I'm going to be going through with you in this recording. Like I said, I'm going to start off with the shortest poem by G.K. Chesterton. I'll then move over to Baby by George MacDonald. And then I'm going to read On Being Human by C.S. Lewis. I think the first poem which is titled The Skeleton, and like I said, it's only eight lines, has, well, it's not that I think, I know, this one's had the biggest impact on me. There's a reason I memorized it. I actually heard it for the first time when I was listening to an Alan Watts lecture a few years ago. It was actually my first introduction to Chesterton. Watts is talking to a crowd, as as he usually did, and he's making a point, 
And then he just starts saying this poem and he recites it. And it struck me with its beauty to the point where I went and explored it. I looked into it. And that was really the first, one of the first stepping stones that led me down the path of Chesterton. And of course, now my channel really, uh, one of its goals is to really expose you to the wonderful mind of Chesterton. So this poem holds a very special place in my heart. It's only eight lines, but my goodness, is it is it powerful? So let's actually read it. And then uh, we'll maybe think about it a little bit. The poem goes, okay, so let's do this properly. It's called The Skeleton by Chesterton. And I want you to imagine a beautiful garden teeming with life. And there's grass growing and there's insects buzzing. There's birds flying above and playing in the garden. And in the midst of the garden is the skull. And it's actually the skull, this human skull, that's that's reciting the poem. It's telling you the poem. And the skeleton is actually talking to the garden around it. It's talking to the birds and it's talking to uh, everything happening in the scene. And with that image in mind, let me begin. He writes, Chattering finch and waterfly are not merrier than I. Here among the flowers I lie, laughing everlastingly. No, I may not tell the best. Surely, friends, I might have guessed. Death was but the good king's jest. It was hid so carefully. Beautiful. Let's go through it. So, chattering finch and waterfly are not merrier than I. The the bird and the insects, they're not as happy as as I am, this skull lying here in the in the grass. Here among the flowers I lie, laughing everlastingly, laughing for eternity. You can almost imagine the skull's shape kind of bent into a, a laugh, into a smile, which is obviously symbolic of death, right? You've got this this almost joyous take on death. But really, it's the last four lines of the poem that that hit home because the skull then says, No, I may not tell the best. Surely, friends, I might have guessed. Death was but the good king's jest. It was hid so carefully. Who's the good king? Well, you know, it's Chesterton. It's God, right? God is the good king. And death is but his jest. Death is but the punchline. It's it's the thing we fear most of all, but Chesterton is saying actually it's it's a jest. It's a play. It's a it's a teasing towards eternity. And of course the last line, it was hit so carefully. You know, I love that last line because it 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 reveals something about the way we think of death, it's its impenetrable. We don't know, we can't know what comes next. We have inklings, we have maybe even inclinations or intuitions rather. And, you know, if you're a person of faith, 
you have ideas based on scripture, based on things you've heard, based on experiences you've had that perhaps create images in your mind of what the after life might be like, but it's hidden and it's not hidden recklessly. It's not hidden haphazardly. It's hidden carefully. So there's a sense in the poem in which Chesterton is suggesting that God meticulously plans things this way deliberately. And of course, the skeleton, which is already on the other side, well, he's just laughing because he's found the punchline. He's seen through the jest. And there's something so beautiful about that. That's why it's one of my favorite poems. I love it so much. That is The Skeleton by Chesterton. Let's look at the next poem, which is by George MacDonald. This one's called Baby. Now, I am a father. I have a, a daughter, and she's still very young. She's, uh, she's only 11 months. Her first birthday is coming up soon in March. And I actually found this poem, uh, I think, just after she was born. And uh, it's, it's really a dialogue between parents and the baby. And it's parents kind of as close to heaven as they can be because the baby having just been born is much closer to eternity than someone who's been here like myself for, you know, over 27 years. So in this poem, I want you to picture this dialogue between these new parents and this baby. And the baby in the poem is responding and answering the parents' questions. The parents ask a question and the baby answers a question. So with that image in mind, let's read the poem. I'll read it through once and then we'll think about it a little bit. It begins, Baby, by George MacDonald. Where did you come from, baby dear? Out of nowhere. Oh, whoops. There, I messed it up. Let's, let's try that again. Where did you come from, baby dear? Out of everywhere. Into here. Where did you get those eyes so blue? Out of the sky, as I came through. What makes the light in them sparkle and spin? Well, some of the starry twinkles left in. Where did you get that little tear? I found it waiting when I got here. What makes your forehead so smooth and high? A soft hand stroked it as I went by. What makes your cheek like a warm white rose? I saw something better than anyone knows. Whence that three-cornered smile of bliss? Three angels gave me at once a kiss. Where did you get this pearly ear? God spoke, and it came out to hear. Where did you get those arms and hands? Love made itself into bonds and bands. Feet, whence did you come, you darling things? From the same box as the cherub's wings. 
How did they all just come to be you? God thought about me, and so I grew. But how did you come to us, you dear? God thought about you, and so I am here. Stunning. Beautiful. Let's go through it again. Where did you come from, baby? Out of everywhere into here. You know, I love already just the first the first line. Out of everywhere into here. You'd almost expect him, like I did, you know, when I read it, I actually, I'm, I messed up. I said out of nowhere into here. Well, this idea that we come from nothing, right? But it's it's completely the opposite in this poem. Because McDonald is saying, well, actually, you came from everything. You came from the source of everything. Everything comes, in a sense, from nothing. So you didn't come from nothing. You came from everything. For even nothing comes from, in a sense, everything. Yeah, well, that makes sense in my head when I say it, but it might not when you're you're hearing it. (laughs) Anyway, let's go to the next line. Where did you get those eyes so blue? Well, out of the sky as I came through. And there you see this idea that, you know, we're created not just in the image of God, but creation itself is a reflection of God's creation. And so as a consequence, you know, even the colors which color our bodies in various ways, are it's, it's, the, it's the same spectrum we experience when we look at the world, the world of colors. There's God's fingerprint in the blue skies, on the blue dress of the Theotokos, on the blue, on the blue, uh, in the blue oceans and the blue eyes of the person. The next line says, what makes the light in them, in the eyes, sparkle and spin? Well, some of the starry twinkles left in. And here immediately, I just think of, you know, we're so, if, if we're part of God's creation, then it only makes sense that, you know, a poem like this is going to draw those connections between creation itself and us as humans. So the stars sparkle and so do our eyes. Then the parents ask, because babies are known to cry, where did you get that little tear? And the baby said, I found it waiting when I got here. And that just makes me think that you know, the baby didn't come crying. The baby came into this world and then found sadness, found the brokenness of the world. And then that's where it finds the tear in our fallen world. But it comes from a place where that tear wasn't. The next line says, what makes your forehead so smooth and high? The baby says, a soft hand stroked it as I went by. Also, this idea of tenderness, you know, on his way to earth, <laughs> this tenderness, this soft hand stroking the cheek, just as a parent strokes the cheek of their child. The next line says, what makes your cheek like a warm white rose? And I love this line. The baby says, I saw something better than anyone knows. Now there's this this warmness, this this purity, right? This this idea 
the, the, the symbolism of the color white, right? Is this purity, this goodness. You see it everywhere, even in Star Wars. You see the, the clothing, the whiteness, and uh, you'll see the stormtroopers have white armor, but underneath that they've got the, 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 the um, I don't know what you'd call it, like the suit underneath the armor, and, the, and that's black. So you get that contrast between these deeply symbolic, uh, well, colors. Um, I know black and white technically aren't colors, but whatever, I f I, whatever they're called, I, f I forget the name now. Then uh, we see, what's the next point? Let's see here. Okay, so I saw something better than anyone knows, and it's that seeing that results in that purity and that warmness. The next line says, whence that three-cornered smile of bliss? Well, three angels gave me at once a kiss. You know, anytime you're reading Christian poetry and you see the you see the number three or the word three, uh, you know there's there's obviously intonations of the Trinity, right? So it's it's not coincidental that it's three angels, right? And it's a three-cornered smile, and the smile is is blissful. It's joyous. The next line says, where did you get that pearly ear? And the baby says, God spoke and it came out to hear. So through God's very action of speaking, the world is categorized and the world is created. You know, I, I know it's not technically right etymologically, but I really love the idea of the universe being a single universe, verse being a spoken sentence, right? Let there be light. I know that's not technically etymolo etymologically correct, but I, I love that idea. You know, the universe is the single verse. It's the single spoken sentence. And so through God's speech, the world is created through speech, which is also how we categorize and how we structure the world in a, in a very deep way that's hard for us to really wrap our heads around. We, in some sense, see concepts. We see you know, there's so many things going around. There's so many things happening around you that you have to focus your attention on certain things. And the way you interact with other people and the way you categorize things around you is through language. It is through speech. So this idea that we create the world in a sense through speech, God creates the world through speech, and it's through that speech that things are created. That's all wrapped up to me in this idea that God spoke and then the ears came out to hear the speaking. The next line says, where did you get those arms and hands? Well, love made itself into bonds and bands. And just, uh, I don't want to just say something to say something, right? There's nothing that jumps out to me right there that isn't maybe obviously apparent, but the idea that love is the source of this baby, that love actually enters into reality in the form of connections and those connections are even represented physically in our bodies through the connections we have from our minds to our body from our arms to our hands and the way the hands relate to each other the way the arms relate to each other the way your body relates to you and your your family and as a spreading out from that to the world around you so love enters in physically in our bodies and it is our bodies are really an expression of love since god is love any aspect of creation 
is going to reflect that in some way. And then the next line says, feet, when did, feet, whence did you come, you darling things? And the the baby says, from the same box as the cherub's wings. You know, I love this idea that God's got a little box of uh, bits and doodads that he, he, he adds, right? So the same creator of the angels, the same creator of the cherubs, and, uh, you know, the, the same toolbox where God finds the uh, cherub's wings. It's in that same box that um, where, you know, your feet come from. It's from the same source, really. The next line says, how did they all just come to be you? And this this sentence is really kind of bringing everything together, right? Because you've got... You've got the smile, you've got the cheek, you've got the forehead, you've got the ear, you've got the arms and the hands. So it's a description of the body, right? The parents are piecing together what this baby is and why this baby is here. You know, why does the baby have all of these various beautiful elements? And then the baby says, okay, so the question is, how did all these things just come to be you? And the baby says, well, God thought about me, and so I grew. So God's very thought results in creation. There's this, uh, there's this parallel between the last two verses, because in the next verse it says, but how did you come to us? you dear what makes us so special right because the whole poem is about how special this baby is and then at the end the parents think well why us right why would god send you to 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 us you know what makes us so special and bearing in mind that in the very in the in the line we just read the baby says well god thought about me and so i grew and the final line is that well god thought about you and so i am here I'll read that last line. It says, but how did you come to us, you dear? Well, God thought about you, and so I am here. And that's that parallel I'm talking about, right? It's God thought about me, and then God thought about you. So the parents are kind of exploring why this baby, why this miracle should come to them. And they are almost enamored at the different elements of the baby and the baby's beauty and the the simple things that we take for granted like the ears and the hands and the arms etc and the baby kind of reminds them well you know what god was thinking about you just as god has created me and loves me so he created and loves you and so god thinking about you sent you to me sent me to you sorry and, you know, I was talking to my wife one day and I said, well, we had this kind of thought. And I think it's a thought a lot of parents had, a lot of parents have, which is, you know, I, I found myself saying one day, I'm so glad that she was born into our household because we can really give her love and we can really look after her. And this is, you know, if you're if you really feel you're caring and you're sacrificing and you're showing love to your child, um, there's a sense in which you feel gratitude that you are the ones responsible for this person. You are the ones who were given the responsibility to look after this person and the joy and the difficulties that come with that. 
And I remember saying, you know, it's actually a, in a way, a funny thing to say. I'm so glad she was born in, you know, I'm so glad she was given to us. Well, in a way, she is us. Your baby is the two of you. It's not like she could have been born somewhere else in another family because that wouldn't be the two of you. Your child is the product of your love. Your child is a living, walking, breathing manifestation of the love that you share. And so, as a consequence, if if that child is your love, well, that's not going to be replicated or imitated anywhere else. That child is uniquely yours because that child is, in a very deep sense, you and your partner. As well as being their own person, there is a stamp of yourself upon them. Very much like there's a stamp of God upon you and me. I love this poem. I think it's beautiful. It's also fairly short. It's a little bit longer than The Skeleton by Chesterton. But hey, I mean, that's not difficult to do, right? Eight lines is... <laughs> that's short. So um, I, I, I think even though it's longer, I think it's still a pretty fairly short poem. And I think it's beautiful. I think it's the kind of poem that I'm actually going to a baptism on Sunday of a friend's son. And, you know, it's the kind of poem you would say at a baptism. It's the kind of poem you would you would share with fellow parents because it just really elevates the role of the baby, the beauty of the child, but at the same time it elevates the role and the responsibility given to the parents. And I just love that. George MacDonald was incredible. And uh, this is just one of his poems. I'll probably do more, but I love it. So that's Baby by George MacDonald. I'm now going to explore the final poem, which is the longest, although it's still fairly short, you know, compared to some poems you'll find out there. And this poem is by C.S. Lewis, the author of the pretty well-known Narnia books. C.S. Lewis might not be a name known by everybody, but very many people do do know or have heard of Narnia, right? Uh, very often through the films and, of course, through the through the books themselves. C.S. Lewis was just, you know, again, all three of these gentlemen I'm talking about this evening, MacDonald, Chesterton, Lewis, you know, uh, Chesterton was influenced by MacDonald, and Lewis was influenced by MacDonald and Chesterton. So they all have a, a connection. And I think of the three poems, Lewis's poem is, like I already said, the longest, but it also is much more... Uh, concrete. It's a lot less abstract, although it, it's still abstract, given that it's poetry and poetry tends to be abstract. I think I'm going to stop rambling now and just read it to you. And then we'll again come back and just talk about it a little bit. So this is On Being Human by C.S. Lewis. He writes, Angelic minds, they say, by simple intelligence, Behold the forms of nature. You know what? I'm going to stop right there and just give you a little bit of context going into this. I, I, I should have before we started. Let me just say, Chesterton, listen to, the name, listen to the name of this poem, right? Chesterton wrote a lot about angels and humans and 
you know, the unique role of humanity. Well, Chet, uh, Lewis is doing the same thing here. He's 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 highlighting what it means to be human. Hence the name of the poem. On, uh, the name of the poem on being human. So keeping that in mind, you can expect him to talk about the qualities of angels and the qualities of mankind. Having said that, let's now really begin reading it, but just keeping that in mind. On Being Human by C.S. Lewis. Angelic minds, they say, by simple intelligence behold the forms of nature. They discern unerringly the archetypes, all the verities which mortals lack or indirectly learn. Transparent in primordial truth, unvarying, pure pure earthness and right stonehood from their clear. High eminence are seen, unveiled, the seminal huge principles appear. The treeness of the tree They know the meaning of arboreal life, how the earth's salty lap, the solar beam uplifts it, all the holiness enacted by leaves' fall and rising sap. But never an angel knows the knife-edged severance of sun from shadow where the trees begin, the blessed cool at every pore caressing us, an angel has no skin. They see the form of air, but mortals breathing it drink the whole summer down into the breast, the lavish pinks, the field new mown, the ravishing sea smells, the wood fire smoke that whispers rest. Okay, that was a bit weird. Let me reread that last one. The lavish pinks, the field new mown, the ravishing sea smells, the wood fire smoke that whispers rest, the tremor on the rippled pool of memory, that from each smell in widening circles goes, the pleasure and the pang. Can angels measure it? An angel has no nose. The nourishing of life and how it flourishes on death and why they utterly know but not the hill-born, earthy spring, the dark, cold bilberries, the ripe peach from the southern wall still hot, full-bellied tankards foamy-topped, the delicate half-lyric lamb, a new loaf's billowy curves, nor porridge, nor the tingling taste of oranges, an angel has no nerves. Far richer they, I know the sense's witchery guards us like air from heavens too big to see, imminent death to man that barbed sublimity, and dazzling edge of beauty unsheathed would be. Yet here, within this tiny charmed interior, this parlor of the brain, their maker shares with living men some secrets in a privacy forever ours not theirs so when i said this is a lot more concrete i think it's just a lot more descriptive and it's a lot more clear it's a lot less imagistic it's quite it's quite clear 
in general what he's trying to say. And each verse or each stanza is really just, it begins by listing something angels have. And then it ends by revealing something that angels don't. It ends really by showing something that angels are missing out on. Okay, so having said that, let's go through it again. But this time I'll provide some commentary as we go. So he begins again, remember what I said, by revealing something angels have and ending by revealing something they don't. So the, f- the first stanza is actually just something that angels have that we don't. And he says, angelic minds, so the minds of angels, they say, by simple intelligence behold the forms of nature. They discern unerringly the archetypes, all the verities which mortals lack or indirectly learn. So there already there's something we lack, right? Angels can perceive the, the archetypes unerringly, without error. They can behold all the forms of nature. They can see all the forms that we are very often either unaware of, not paying attention to, uh, unable to discern. He then says, they are transparent in primordial truth. I mean, the primordial truth of the universe is is transparent to them. They can see right through it. And they do that unvaryingly, unvaryingly, uh, unvaryingly. And then he says, pure earthness and right stonehood from their clear, high eminence are seen unveiled. The seminal huge principles appear. So they see the principles of reality. They see the very core of reality in a way that we just can't. Then he says, the treeness of the tree. So here he's referring to the forms, right? He's referring to the essence of the tree, the treeness of the tree, the thing that makes it a tree. They see that very clearly. They know the meaning of arboreal life, how the earth's salty lap, the solar beam uplifts, all the holiness enacted by leaves falling and rising sap. And I really like that because it's like they see the holiness in everything. They see the holiness of creation. Everything down to, up to, and including the simple leaves falling from a tree and the simple rising of sap. But then he ends, like I pointed out, he ends by mentioning something angels don't have. And he says this, But never an angel knows the knife-edged severance of sun from shadow where the trees begin, the blessed cool at every pore caressing us. An angel has no skin. So that knife-edged severance of being in the heat, being in the sun, and moving into the shade, that relief that that gives you, that coolness caressing us, right? Caressing every single pore. And it's very deliberate that he uses the word poor because he ends this by saying, an angel has no skin. This angel's pure spirit. It's not embodied. It's quite significant, therefore, that God himself became a man and not an angel. So there's, there's an element, well, humanity is redeemed, matter is redeemed, creation is redeemed through the act of the incarnation, through the act of God himself taking creation upon himself in the form of man. An angel doesn't have that, but we have that in common with God. He then begins the next stanza, and again he begins by listing something that angels have that we don't. And he says, 
they see the form of air. Remember earlier he said that they see, they behold the forms of nature simply, easily. It's easy to them to see it. So, they see the forms of air, but mortals, breathing it, drink the whole summer down into the breast. We're, in a sense, closer to it because we're actually in it. The lavish pinks, the colors, the field new moan, the ravishing sea smells, the wood fire smoke that whispers, rest. He's talking about our senses, right? He's talking about the smells. He's talking about another element of our experience, the, the, the various things we, we get to experience because we are embodied. He then says the tremor on the rippled pool of memory that from each smell in widening circles goes. And it's almost like, you know, he's referring to, this is just my reading, but it seems like he's referring to the fact that smells are linked to memories. And then he says, in a really beautiful way, the tremor on the rippled pool of memory that from each smell in widening circles goes. So you can almost imagine a drop hitting a pool of water and the circles radiating and emerging from that single drop in the same way that a single smell can radiate outwards memories that we have, that we hold. So there's a connection there between our memory, our past experiences, and the smell that's engaging with us in the present. He then says the pleasure and the pang. Okay, so it's not just the joyous memories, it's also the painful ones, right? Um, the things you can smell, the, you know, you might have lost a loved one, someone very close to you, and that there might be still, there might still be some shirts in, in the cupboard that they used to wear. And maybe you haven't brought yourself to the point where you feel you can throw these away. But every time you walk past that cupboard, you, you grab that clothing and you smell it. And it just reminds you of that person. Almost as if you're hugging them, right? And it can be very difficult for people to get rid of that clothing. Because it's not just fabric. It's, it's a memory contained within the smell. It's a feeling contained within the sense of smell. And it's painful. It's a pang. It's a pleasure, but it's a pang. And Lewis asks, can angels measure that? An angel has no nose. He then writes, the nourishing of life and how it flourishes on death and why they utterly know. So there's a very important point there. The way life nourishes and also how it flourishes, the way life flourishes on death and then, of course, why that happens, the angels know. And not just know, they utterly know. They completely understand why death has to happen. And then he says, but not the hill-born earthy spring, the, cold the dark cold bilberries, the ripe peach from the southern wall still hot, full-bellied tankard's foamy top, foamy topped, the delicate half-lyric lamb, a new loaf's billowy curves, nor porridge, 
nor the tingling taste of oranges. An angel has no nerves. So he's talking here of something we know that the something we utterly know that the angels don't. The spring, the dark cold you've got that sense right that coldness that you feel in the bullberries the ripe peach from the southern wall still hot you feel the heat you feel the cold contrasting those two sensations full belly tankards foamy top the delicate half lyric lamb a new loaf a new loaf of bread the billowy curves and how you feel that curve and you push it in and you hear the bread crackling and well an angel has no nerves an angel doesn't know what that's like but you do. And that's, again, remember the title of this poem, On Being Human. Then, the final, the final uh, verse or stanza, Lewis writes, Far richer they, so the angels, far richer they, I know, I, oh, I love this line, I know the sense's witchery, Guards us like air from heavens too big to see. See, there's this is interesting idea that your senses not only expose you to the world around you, but they actually limit you from experiencing things fully. But that's that is guarding you. That is the that is one of the that is what it means to be human, right? That's in a way what separates us from the angels. And he's saying, you know, I know the senses which I know. I know the role of the senses. I know that they are, as he said, guard us like air from heavens too big to see. Imminent death to man, to man that barbed sublimity, sublimity, uh, sublimity, and dazzling edge of beauty unsheathed would be. Okay, so again, this the dazzling beauty of reality if we could experience it directly but then he says yet here within this tiny charmed interior so within this tiny bewitched and i'm using that word very carefully right and as 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 is lewis right witchery is not he's not talking about witchcraft he's just talking about the fact that the senses can fool us the senses can charm us the senses can 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 lead us towards and at the same time bar us from mystery. And so he says, within this tiny realm we get to experience, facilitated by our senses, and he calls it the parlor of the brain, the, the parlor of the brain, their maker shares. So the angel's maker, God, he shares with living men, with you and me, some secrets in a privacy forever ours, not theirs. That's the final line. So there are things that God shares with you and me as human beings that the angels simply cannot understand. And because of the incarnation, because God himself became man, God knows in a way that the angels can never know but in a way that you do know, in a way that you do experience day after day after day. And I think that's so beautiful to reflect on what it means to be human. The things we take for granted, the things we don't even think about, are the most beautiful things about reality.
our simple senses, our smells, our tastes, our nerves, our touch, these small, simple, seemingly insignificant experiences, we share them with God. And not even the angels have that privilege. Okay, that brings us to the end. I hope you got some value out of this. I want to say that this is obviously on YouTube, because if you're watching it on YouTube, you know it's on YouTube. But it's also on Spotify. So uh, it's a it's my podcast. I believe it's episode 7. So you'll find every episode of the podcast on Spotify and YouTube. If you enjoyed this, let me know. Send me a comment. Please consider liking the video. If you're new and you want more content like this, please subscribe. You know, I'm saying all of those things that a YouTuber has to say, right? The reality is that uh, the, the, the more the channel grows, the more people get to see this stuff and the more income that brings. And as a consequence, I can do this more and I can support my family. I don't want to sit here and pretend like um, there isn't some kind of benefit to having more subscribers. It's the elephant in the room, right? More people watching this just helps me do this more full time, which means I can do something I love. And if that gives you some kind of benefit, if you enjoy this kind of content, then it's, it's a win-win because you're helping me and I'm hopefully giving you something of value. So please consider subscribing. And when I say it supports the channel and it supports me, I really mean it. And then I also want to say that I've got a, a really nice conversation I had with David Patrick Harry. He runs the YouTube channel Church of the Eternal Logos. That's going to be released on the channel next. So that's, uh, that's going to be another episode of the podcast. We spoke uh, last weekend. Once I'm finished editing that, I'm going to upload that one as well. And I think that's going to be also really, really nice. I, I think you're going to enjoy that conversation if you like this kind of stuff. So that brings us to an end. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for your time. I know the world's crazy these days, but I hope this could give you a little bit of calm and peace uh, amidst the madness. <laughs> My name is Dylan. This is Existential Delight. God bless you, whoever you are, wherever you're listening from. I hope you just have a wonderful 2023. And uh, through the joys and the sorrows, I hope you can see those two imposters just the same. And, uh, and uh, just get closer to God and your family and your community and those around you. Goodbye for now, and I'll see you in the next episode.